0: Well, good morning. Have you ever made a memorable entrance? Now, I know there's some brides in here. I'm sure that you have made memorable entrances. I've been at a few of them. Caitlin, the hottest day ever in the state of Louisiana. Yet, she walked down those beautiful lawns at that plantation home under the trees and we just saw a beautiful bride. Gaten in a room with twinkling lights and we were able just to share an experience of that time that her and Tim were married. Just recently, Adam and Whitney and, uh, a little patio and just a quaint little close group of people. Um, I remember all three of my daughters, one outside at dusk in front of a, a little home, another one in late in the afternoon on the shore of a lake, uh, the last one uh, on the rooftop of a building overlooking the Gulf of Mexico, and each time I was able to be a part of this grand entrance uh, that they made. At one wedding where I wasn't part of the entrance, I was an observer, was our wedding is when he was walked down the aisle of the church that we attended but these entrances are memorable I can remember as a I don't know naive 17 year old going to New Orleans to a Jeff O'Toole concert and me and the two guys going with us finding some obscure place to park probably illegal um to go into the uh, municipal auditorium in new orleans and sitting on a balcony uh seat off to the i guess left-hand side of the stage and it was kind of unusual i mean the stage was like bare there was a microphone stand in the middle and there was a curtain across the back but that's all we can remember and there was music playing before the concert started um and then the room got dark, very, very dark, and there was a single spotlight that came down on this microphone in the middle of the stage. And there was some music playing, and it began to get louder and louder, and the circle got just a little bigger. Uh, and then there was a loud boom and a big flash of light. And then where that microphone was was this purple, dense purple smoke, and then all of a sudden, that smoke just almost disappeared instantly, and the lights came up on the stage, and there was a full band, and there was a man standing there, like a crane, twirling a flute over his head, and we were just going, oh my gosh, and so uh, that, of course, was Ian Anderson, the flautist for the group Jeff they began what was a memorable and very um, uh, different uh, concert experience, and it was great. But that, that opening has stuck in my mind all these years. And so today we're going to think about another grand entrance that uh, we were all familiar with, and Charlotte gave us a hint to that just a second ago. So when Wes texted me, this is how Wes asks things sometimes. You know, we preach for us on this day, and here's, the, sermon, here's the, the scripture I want you to preach. Oftentimes when he does that, he'll kind of preface that with a little you know, background in, on what that is. And many times it's been part of a sermon series, but it was just the scripture. Okay. So I, as I would do, I would read the, the scripture over and over again. I would read it from multiple uh, versions of, of you know and paraphrases and things like that and about three or four weeks in this process I, I just I had to call him and said okay look I'm just I'm kind of struggling trying to see how you're trying to loop this in to you know the Palm Sunday and he said well, what scripture are you looking at I said Mark 1, 1 through 1-11 <laughs> that's not the right scripture I said, that's what you texted me well, I mean, I'm never wrong. So I scrolled back through the text messages. Oh, Mark 11, 1 through 11. That makes more sense now. So about three weeks ago, I got to start on the journey of looking through Mark 11, 1 through 11. And So if you have your Bible with, us, with you, would you please turn to that and then stand and let me read Mark 11, 1 the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had t- said to them, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks, cloaks on it, and sat on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You can be seated. Join me as I pray. Father, we are eternally grateful for the preservation of your word and for the unique way that is compiled, the way that uh, you have used your spirit and the inspiration of writers uh, to leave for us um, all of the nurturing that we need of who you are, your character, your love for us, your desire for us, um, the, or just the way you have ordained the relationship between us and you. And as we go into this time of uh, Easter, uh, as we think about the week that will be before us, Lord, uh, and what will happen uh, historically on Friday, and again what will happen on Sunday, Lord, we are just so uh, grateful for the gift of salvation that you have provided through your son, Christ Jesus. I pray you'll just be with us now and bless bless our time together. So I hope today that you will be able to see how the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem where that everybody, the disciples, the crowd, Jesus, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. In a world created and sustained by an immortal, unchangeable creator, there are no surprises. However, our human minds make it hard to grasp that despite God's masterful design, people are going to do what they are supposed to do for the glory of God. The events of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem are no exception. In the four gospel accounts, there are less than a dozen events that are actually chronicalized in all four Gospels. Um, before this one event, the entry into Jerusalem, there was only one other event that was in all four Gospels, and that was the feeding of the 5,000. So here we are, only two events into the harmony of the Gospel, and we're at the Passover. Uh, the, and we're at the triumphal entry of Christ into uh, the city of Jerusalem, and that tells you that there's eight other events that were in all four gospels that happened just in this next one week, which tells us the significance of uh, this part of the gospels. We have to remember that the gospels were written by four different people. Uh, they were written for different audiences. They're led by the Holy Spirit to share the story of Christ to various audiences. Still. One's man ministry, so many amazing events, and yet each gospel focuses on certain ones. To that point, to be in all four gospels must indicate the significance of this one event. Despite appearing in all four gospels, each of the recollections are slightly different. There's no major differences, just the writers choosing to emphasize on what the Spirit is leading them. As with each gospel, Mark's authorship is not identified, but the early church fathers believed Mark to be the author, written through the lens of Peter to aid Roman Christians. Quite possibly, Mark may not even have been an eyewitness to this event, but rather a compiler of Peter's accounts. Mark's account does not exactly follow the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, but neither does his writing come containing any major differences or contractions to them. But according to the scholars, Mark was probably the first gospel account, so he had no other roadmap to necessarily follow. We will see in Mark's account the actions of three sets of people. We'll see that they did exactly what they were supposed to do. Each of these three parts will pay a part of the triumph of entry. And the following, and they follow what was prophesied which should not be, of course, any surprise to any of us. First, we'll look at the disciples. The disciples did exactly what they were supposed to do. Let me reread verses 1 through 6. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it if anyone says to you what are you doing why are you doing this say the lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it and some of those standing there said to them what are you doing untying the colt and they told him jesus has said what that jesus has said and they let them go So, all these events are prophesied. There's, again, no surprises. David has already read for us Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. It says, so, Zechariah was not a prophet, but he was a priest. He was reportedly part of a group of 120 priests that were part of the great synagogue council assembled by Nehemiah, during the reestablishment of Jerusalem after the exile of Babylon. And they were presided over, these 120, by Ezra. The council later developed into what we know as the, Sene- the Sanhedrin. The Jews had been in Jerusalem for a while, so they've been back. Our friends Nehemiah have come back and built the walls and fortified the cities. The people have re inhabited the city, but then they've been there for a little while. And God again, it feels like they've slipped back into an attitude of, like, indifference towards God. So God called out both Haggai and later Zechariah to rebuild the temple because one day the Messiah would come to inhabit it. The book of Isaiah is filled with many references to the coming Messiah, but the book of Zechariah is essentially the most messianic and apocalyptic book in the Old Testament. It primarily focuses on the coming Christ And his coming glory. There are a lot of visions, prophecies, heavenly visitors, but there's also a lot of practical writing regarding the repentance, salvation, and holy living. Zechariah is warning with many apocalyptic images and signs, but in chapter 8 sets his course towards God's favor with Israel and as well the future of Zion. So at Zechariah 9:9, we see. Where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and matted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Early in Mark chapter um, 11, verses 2 and 3, the disciples are tasked with securing this donkey that Jesus tells them about. So they go into the, well, Jesus says, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter, you will find a cold tied there. But no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, you are to do things, do while you're doing this, say, the Lord is in need of it. And he will send it back shortly. In Matthew and Luke, we see the disciples were told like exactly where to go, where to turn, what house it would be at. Here, it's just Simply, you'll see the colt, you'll know it, and they go and they get it. And so they continue on in verses 4 and 6. And they went and they found the colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As in, they untied it. Some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? And they answered, Jesus has told them what the Jesus has told them, and the people let them go. In fact, they were asked, and they answered exactly. And they, were, they told them that they were return with the colt. Now, some guy showed up your neighborhood and went to untie your colt from the side of the house. And we're just going to walk off with it. But said, Jesus told me to do this. We might have a little doubt there. A little concern. Um, and so, uh, these people uh, are thinking, but you know, the Lord needs our colt. It's a good, if they were good Jews, they probably would know to let them have it. They knew the prophecies. 500 years before, Zechariah had been prophesying about how this king would arrive. Um, And they, if they were good synagogue attenders, they probably didn't see a problem with this. So, dating back to the time of David, kings were often paraded through the streets on the back of A donkey. A donkey. You might ask why not a horse well again Zechariah 9 9 tells us it will be a donkey secondly David also showed how kings come in peace riding on a donkey in 1st Kings 1 David again proclaims Solomon as the future king there's been a little bit of a um, dust up among David's kids um, David's uh, other son Anselm thinks he should be the one should be the king, and there's been um, a little uh, dispute, uh, and now uh, that has kind of ended, and David wants to make sure that everyone knows that Solomon is the one who wants to be the king. So he tells Samuel to go to Solomon and anoint him. So he says, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule. Not but a mule Jesus has spent his whole ministry connecting with the people Palestine was an agrarian society and the people related to a humble servant coming on a donkey riding rather than riding through the city on a horse that was like a Roman thing and Jesus was not a Roman thing Christ was coming for God's people the Jews so the disciples being good disciples doing exactly what they were supposed to do, followed Christ's instructions and brought him the donkey for his arrival. Next, we have the people doing exactly what they were supposed to do. In verse 7 through 10 of Mark, we read, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. By this time, the people were used to kind of following Jesus. They were trailing behind Jesus everywhere he went. He was, had quite an audience. Even at night, you know, they would bunk down someplace and there were always some stragglers. I can only imagine what the paparazzi of Jesus' time were like. But this is what we're thinking about. So as Jesus and this little group of disciples is making their way from town to town, once the donkey arrived, the disciples put their garments on it on the back of the, of the donkey, making it comfortable for Jesus. They began this journey now from Bethany to Jerusalem. Now, this was not like a short little walk. This was probably a couple of miles They were kind of up in the hills. They're going to be walking around the backside of the Mount of Olives and then down the mountain and then into the gates of Jerusalem. So it was, you know, not a short little trip. As they were going, the crowd was beginning to get bigger and bigger. You had those who were already there. This was a busy time. This was uh, the Passover. We had people coming into Jerusalem to take care of Passover responsibilities. And so as this crowd was moving forward, it got larger, and again, uh, just as they cherished uh, their traditions, just as they knew God is uh, going to come again, uh, they're thinking, this is Christ, this is the king. Um, he's here to fulfill his prophecy. So, again, the people are doing what they were supposed to do. This is prophesized. At least the habit of the peoples were prophesied. We see this in Psalms 118. Psalms 118 is part of six psalms uh, that are known as the Hillel. Uh, These psalms were most likely written as Jewish liturgy, often sung at each of the festivals and the celebrations throughout the year, most notably at Passover. So they were familiar with these verses. This is, again, from Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Save us. Hosanna. They're ready for a king to save them. They're asking for the king to save them. They want to be saved from now their enslavement to uh, Roman rule. Uh, When they wrote these Uh, Psalms, they were remembering being freed from their enslavement from the Egyptians. Uh, This is what Passover is all about, their rescue from uh, their enslavement. Uh, Now Passover will become the symbol for salvation for them, uh, the shedding of blood to set them apart and to save them. Mark 11, the people are at the point where Christ is about to shed his blood for his people. And they're crying out the very thing that they unknowingly don't know—that is about to happen—that his blood will be shed for their salvation. The people are continuing to do what they are supposed to do. They are welcoming this new king. The practice of praying the new king was not unfamiliar to the people. That was a practice that they had read to them in synagogues and reminded them of their past. In Second Kings, among the many accounts of the kings. You read about the kings who were made kings because they were the son of the past king. You read over and over again that they ruled, and they ruled over a number of years, and then they died, uh, and then they rest with their ancestors in uh, Jerusalem, the city of David, uh, and so their not-so-good son succeeds them as the king. But in 2 Kings 9, we had the prophet breaking that ancestral chain. He sends a prophet from the company of prophets into the city among the leaders of the army and tells the prophet to pull out the captain. This is Jehu. The prophet will be pulled aside, will pull him aside and into his chambers, and he will anoint him with oil and call him the king. The prophet will make a hasty exit, but the other leaders will come in and ask, what was all that about? And Jehu will share that the prophet had just appointed him king. And so at that moment, in in Kings 9.13, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew their trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Honoring kings is a long tradition of the people of Israel. They've done it for centuries. No different now, based on all the rumors and talk about Jesus, they saw him as the coming king. And we're treating his interests as such. But verse Mark 11.10 gives us an additional glimpse of the future of the prophecy. It reads, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, Hosanna, save us, we pray. They're again quoting a prophecy of the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 37, we read that great story of the dry bones. Ezekiel is taken to the middle of the desert, and Ezekiel finds himself surrounded by bones. Bones everywhere. Listen as I read from Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord (coughs) God to these bones, Behold. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sine- sinews among you, and you will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Sounds like a, what he did when he made Adam. So I prophesied as, as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound of a beholder rattling, and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came unto them, And they lived and stood on their feet in an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from says the lord god behold i will open your graves and raise you your grave from the graves of people and i will bring you into the land of israel and you shall know that i am your lord when i open your graves and raise you from your graves of my people and it will be my spirit within you and you shall live and i will place you in your own land then you shall know that i am the lord i have spoken and i will do it declares the lord and then he continues in verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall all walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children <coughs> will dwell there forever. And David, s- my servant, shall be your prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in the land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and it will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. My sanctuary is in the midst forevermore. This is Ezekiel reading this. This is... 500 years before this triumphal entry, but this is 600 years after David. And yet he keeps referring back to the son of David and King David. And Jesus has always been tied to the household of David from the lineage of David. David was told that uh, God will preserve his kingdom through David's family, starting with Solomon and all the way now until this arrival of Christ there in Jerusalem is the Son of Man, this God, this Savior. These people believe that Jesus is the promised King, the Son of David, come to reestablish their kingdom. He is the actual King. He's about to throw down and take down their kingdom, take it back. They aren't wrong. Christ will establish a new kingdom, one that will never end. It's just not going to happen quite the way they think it is. But the people are still doing what they're supposed to do. They're putting their faith in Christ, the new king. They are proclaiming and honoring him as he enters the city. Lastly, we come to verse 11. So we see the disciples have done what they were supposed to do, and we see that the people have done what they're supposed to do. But Christ is about to take the next step and do what he is supposed to do. Again, the synoptic Gospels take different paths when they get to the end of the parade. Matthew and Luke seem to connect that action with the actions that Jesus takes the next morning and goes into the temple and runs out the money changers and um, uh, clears the temple. But Mark 11, 11 gives us a different glimpse. And it says, In the inner Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here we see Jesus going to the temple late on a Sunday, the first day of the week, sizing up the place. He knows that tomorrow it will be bustling, what would just become the norm. On the normal second day of the week, there will be people in there, there will be um, a lot of activity not activity that Jesus is uh, confident that is should be conducted in his uh, temple. And so we'll have the outburst. We'll have the money changers and the others run out. But now we see that he and his disciples returned to Bethany. They had just walked there. They've taken this two-mile walk. It doesn't appear that there's anything else for them to do there. So they're going to turn around and make the same walk back to Bethany. Why? Well, because Jesus is doing what he is supposed to do. He's taken one more step toward the fulfillment of the prophecies about his coming. What will he accomplish? How will he be identified as the Messiah? He has ridden the donkey. He has ridden on the cloaks, been praised with palm leaves, and had prophecies proclaimed about him. Now comes the rest of the week, the teaching, the actions, the anointing, the Last Supper, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and more but today Palm Sunday they went back to Bethany oh they were keeping a promise back in verse 3 Jesus gave the disciples instructions and in verse 6 they answered the men saying that as if they were untying the donkey they just were doing what Jesus had told them now they were gonna go return the donkey now some application. The synoptic gospels are a narrative. As I mentioned earlier, they tell the same story from different pers- perspectives. Mark's gospel is considered to be the first written and not that Math and Matthew and Luke copied it. They were just wrote, written of new accounts. We even talked today in the Sunday school about how the Spirit works with individuals and works with people as Christ directs and so As these other Gospels were reading, they were doing exactly what the Spirit was leading to do. And so different elements change. They're incorporated in different ways, but that's okay. There is tremendous harmony among the Gospels, which adds more texture to the Gospel story and the truth that is the Gospel. So as the band comes forward, I want to think that Palm Sunday is a special Sabbath to Christians. However, it was just the first day of a week that led to the more important parts of the life of Christ in the moment. As you take time this week, I might suggest maybe that you read through each of the gospel accounts. Take one gospel a day and see how the story unfolds and uncover the richness of the writers and more importantly, the richness of God's purpose and the Holy Spirit's guidance to each of the writers of the gospels. I guarantee that if you read each of the accounts, and this may be 10 or 12 chapters a day for you, you'll find that there are things that you have never stood, that have never stood out to you. You will have you will question things that you've read before and now hopefully will cause you to look back on the other parts of the gospel. To understand God's word as living and breathing, you just need to remember Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water, they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. If this narrative is new to you, if you aren't sure about it, All the things that we've been talking about we'd like to make sure that you know the rest of the story I will be down front uh, at the end if you want to come and ask me any questions Uh, David will be here Shane will be here any of us will be glad to take time uh, to answer any questions or you're welcome to call the church and make appointments with Wes but please don't don't leave her today with questions about how these stories how these prophecies how this truth in the life of jesus relates to your salvation your opportunity to share in this great blessing that is being a christ follower join me as i pray father all throughout scripture you have told us what you wanted us to know you have shown us what we needed to see you have provided for us whatever we needed in your prophecies you you've explained to us how you will unveil and reveal things to us. Through your writers of scriptures, you have told us how you desire to be served, how you desire to interact with us, and how you desire for us to understand your purposes. Through the revelation of your Son and through the actual arrival of your Son and his death, and then the uh, wonderful gift of your Holy Spirit, you continue to do that for us today. Father, I pray that each of us will truly... um, call on you, depend on you, and trust you for all that we need. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.